Okay, church, hopefully you have your Bibles open. Uh, we are going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 14 through 15 this morning. Um, we're getting close, aren't we? Inch by inch, closer to the end and conclusion of this uh, short letter. Uh, hopefully it's been an encouragement to you so far, and yet we've got so much more to glean from God's Word. And so uh, I'm praying that you've got your Bibles open and you are ready to read verses 14 and 15 of chapter 5 with me. Paul says, Now we exhort you, brethren, to warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. We know the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Father, Lord, we are grateful um, that you have gathered us here, even on this online service this morning, to offer a sacrifice of praise to you. Lord, it is good uh, to worship you. It is a blessing to confess, Father, through song and through prayer, through the reading of your word, that we are gathered to worship the true and living God. Lord, it is to you we direct our attention, it is to you we give our lives, it is to you we offer up every bit of honor, glory, and praise, our Father, Son, and Spirit. Yet we acknowledge, Father, we have also gathered here because we are in need We've gathered to receive, for we are a needy people desperately dependent upon your grace moment by moment. Lord, you know my own heart. You know my weakness. Father, there are many who are wrestling mightily knowing that they are weak, wrestling with trials and tribulations in this life. Some are faint-hearted, some knowing their weakness, some listening to this are even in rebellion, Father. So we ask that you would address each and every one of us corporately by your word this morning, that we might be convicted of our sin, that we might be strengthened to stand all the more in the faith, that we might be committed to grow in love toward one another, that we all might be made more holy through your spirit into the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, hopefully you're aware, and if you aren't, uh, it has been a passion of mine and, and Pastor Justin's as well to implement something here we call uh, Every Member Ministry. And essentially, in our year of serve, this being the year of serve and our worship, grow, and serve calendar, let me just remind you that we are committed here at First Baptist Church of Grey Gables to minister to one another. Uh, in other words, we believe that it is a responsibility of the body as a whole to participate in the ministry to itself. Uh, we believe that that is the case, uh, that we should be ministering uh, to one another, not just the pastors and deacons ministering, but each and every member ministering to each and every members. And yet, so often, we just... I think we wonder, how are we supposed to do that? How are we supposed to minister to one another? What does every member ministry look like? 
Well, what's interesting is in our text, in these two verses, really this could be called or even summarized as every member ministry 101. This is a basic introduction to what um, every, each and every member ministering to one another really looks like. And so, in fact, I would say our big idea is just that. Our big idea is that we are to minister to one another. It's given as an exhortation. <clears throat> Paul urges, he lays out several imperatives, <clears throat> excuse me, and the idea behind each and every one of those imperatives is the idea of to minister to one another. Now, some believe that Paul's just making kind of a general statement here. If he's saying, you know, we, we all should just minister to one another. We should all warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, as if he's just offering a general instruction to address stereotypical issues that arise within the church. And while that's certainly a possibility, I'm going to offer you this morning a slightly different interpretation of these verses. See, I believe that Paul is offering direct counsel to three specific groups of people within the church at Thessalonica. I believe he's addressing three groups that he's actually already addressed throughout this letter. So back in 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 9 through 12, when he's talking about the unruly, I believe he's addressing those who were refusing to work with their own hands and who, were, uh, who had been unruly, who were busybody, not minding their own business, not working with their own hands, but instead were taking advantage of the generosity shown to them uh, and towards others. I think Paul addresses that group uh, in, in here in this text. I also think he addresses the, the group from 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Those who were grieving without hope. Those who were faint-hearted and discouraged because their brothers and sisters in Christ had died. They were concerned about what was going to happen to their brothers and sisters at the return of the Lord. I also believe that Paul's addressing, third, this group from 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11, those who were struggling in a similar way about the issue of the return of the Lord, but they were not concerned about their loved ones, they were concerned about themselves. What would be their own status when the Lord returned? The weak here, I believe, when Paul says the weak, he's talking about the weak in faith. And so I offer that up as an introduction and what I'd like to do for the rest of our time together is I'd like to prove to you why I believe this is the case. And I'm going to do this uh, by looking at each one of these imperatives and then asking two questions. Uh, who is Paul referring to with each imperative and how does he tell those in Thessalonica to minister to each one of these specific groups? Then I'm going to wrap all that up with looking at three specific lessons for our own every member ministry here at First Baptist Church of Grey Gables. So let's go ahead and start with the first imperative, ministering to the unruly. This is the first group that we find here, ministering to the unruly. Who are the unruly? Well, uh, in verse, one, or verse 14 of chapter 4, we see this. Paul says, now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. Who are those who are unruly? This unruly in verse 14 is actually a translation of the Greek word ataktos. Uh, it literally means disorderly or insubordinate. That'll be our working definition for who these unruly are. Those who are disorderly or insubordinate. 
It can refer to this in a general way to any kind of conduct that is contrary to the established laws and practices. Uh, In fact, in extra-biblical literature, this Greek word was often used in a military context. It referred to an insubordinate soldier or a negligent officer, even at times an army that was in disarray. But in a more widely used way, it refers to anybody who does not conform to a certain rule of conduct. And so in our verse specifically, we think of these people as acting disorderly, specifically in regards to their work. Uh, you remember, Paul addressed this group in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. They were being idle. Some might say they were being lazy or slothful. Those who were not conforming to the established practice of working to provide for oneself or family. That conduct that was pleasing to the Lord in regards to the creation mandate. Instead, these people were taking advantage of the generosity of those inside and outside the church who were providing for them. They were idle and their unruliness was a source of disrepute for this young church. The reality is this group in in chapter 4 verses 9 through 12, they're, they're more than merely unruly or idle. They are rebellious, disorderly, undisciplined, insubordinate. They had been warned by Paul when he was present with them, and he is writing to them now and instructing others to continue to admonish them. It's likely that this is one of the groups at least that were undermining the authority of the leaders in Thessalonica. And so this term doesn't simply refer to someone who's having a hard time getting their bottoms off the couch. This is someone who refuses to hear advice, refuses to listen to counsel, and refuses to conform to the instruction of the apostles and leaders of the church in Thessalonica. They are disorderly and insubordinate. Okay, so that's the who, but how do we minister to people such as these? How do we minister to them? Well, according to Paul, we warn them. We warn them. We admonish them to change their ways. We paint for them a vibrant picture of the clear and present danger of which they walk. And and listen, there is no room in ministry to people such as these uh, for for soft-peddling the truth. Our words need to be direct and stern, much like they would be if one of our children were continuously playing too close to the road. And so what Paul says to us actually in 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 11 and 12 actually serves as a good guideline for how we are to minister to people such as these. In fact, look with me at 1 Thessalonians. Let's look back at the second half of verse 10 and read through verse 12. Paul says, but we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. Increase in what? Increase in your love for one another. And then verse 11, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly towards those who are the outside, and you may lack nothing. So if we take this instruction and we glean from this on how we are to warn or admonish those who are unruly, I think the first thing that we can see is we must identify the danger. 
The first thing we can do practically as we're admonishing those who are unruly is we can identify the danger. In this instance, for example, the danger was not simply lacking food or money. As important as those things are, the danger was lacking brotherly love for one another. And so Paul says our admonishments should include a proper identification of what's really at stake. Uh, Paul frames this admonishment with an exhortation to increase in love for one another, to grow in love. That very love that would be the thing that established their hearts in blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the return of the Lord Jesus. And so it seems that the danger, what's it really at stake, is they're growing in holiness. And so we must identify the danger. Second, in our admonishments to those who are unruly, not only must we identify the danger, but we must be clear. We really need to be clear. They must not only identify the danger, we must be clear. Remember this. Uh, You remember that sermon from not too long ago. It's pretty tough stuff. Paul doesn't beat around the bush. Uh, He wrote that they need to aspire to lead a quiet life and mind your own business. Paul's not tiptoeing around the point. He ain't playing. Uh, He is warning them to stop stirring up strife, and he does so clearly. Not only do we need to identify the danger or be clear in our admonishments to those who are unruly, but third, we can provide an alternative. We must provide an alternative. You can't just simply say, don't do this, don't do this, but provide for them an alternative. Paul doesn't simply reprimand them for causing trouble and being unruly. Uh, He told them exactly what they needed to do, didn't he? He essentially says, you need to go out and get yourselves a job. Stop being a busybody. Stop minding other people's affairs. Go out, work with your own hands, and get yourselves a job. He provides for them an alternative. Fourth and finally, in our admonishments and our warnings to those who are unruly, not only do we need to identify the danger and be clear, provide an alternative, but we also need to provide proper motivation. We need to provide proper motivation. Look how Paul ends his admonishment to this group. He says, so that you may walk properly towards outsiders and that you may lack nothing. Paul provided them with proper motivation. That is, uh, their witness to the reality of the gospel depended on this. Their responsibility was at stake. So Paul didn't simply tell them what they should or shouldn't do. He told them why. So those are four very practical ways in which we are to admonish those who are unruly, warn those who are unruly. That's what every member ministry to the unruly looks like. Let's move on though. What about the faint-hearted? Let's look at the ministry to the faint-hearted. Who are the faint-hearted? Well, the Greek word translated faint-hearted here is actually used nowhere else in the New Testament. It's rarely used in extra-biblical Greek. Uh, It literally means little soul. You little-souled one. However, this word was actually used 20 times in the Septuagint. You remember what the Septuagint is? It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. 
Uh, and this word's used several times there. For instance, in Exodus chapter 6, verse 9, the words used there where we read, So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. Uh, it's also used in Isaiah 35, 4, where Isaiah says, Say to those who are fearful hearted. So I think we can gain from that, obviously, this, this relates to anguish of spirit, this relates to those who are fearful hearted. So our working definition for those who are faint hearted is going to be this. Those who are faint hearted are those who are discouraged and despondent because of difficult circumstances in their life. Uh, those who are discouraged and despondent because of difficult circumstances. Now, it is certainly possible that Paul could be referring in our text to people who were hit hardest by the persecution that faced this community as a whole. Remember, Paul's addressed this persecution several times already throughout this letter, and he could be addressing those who were directly most discouraged by that persecution. Uh, that's certainly possible, but a second interpretation, and in my estimation, a better interpretation, is that Paul is referring to those who were hopelessly grieving over their deceased loved ones. That group we found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Remember, they were hopelessly grieving over their deceased brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and this comes even more of a confirmation that this is who he's talking about. When I examine that word comfort. When Paul writes comfort the faint-hearted in 1 Thessalonians 5 14, the word he uses for comfort is not the traditional word for comfort in the Greek. Uh, in fact, this word is only used four or five times throughout the entirety of the New Testament, and it's used twice in John 11. You remember what happens in John 11, right? It's the story of the death of Lazarus, the resurrection of Lazarus. And I think that's the idea that Paul has in mind here, consoling or comforting those who were hopelessly grieving because of their deceased brothers and sisters in Christ. Those who were discouraged and despondent in despair uh, because they were grieving at the prospect of their loved ones missing out on the glorious return of the Lord Jesus. So how do we minister to those who are faint-hearted? Well, it's simple. We encourage them. That's what we do. We encourage those who are faint-hearted, those who are broken and suffering, those who have lost sight of their hope, those who are feeling oppressed and burdened. We enter into that heartache with them. Uh, through our presence and our words, we attempt to pull back the dark clouds so that a ray of hope might shine forth. We continually point them to Jesus and remind them that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to the sons of God. Again, Paul's encouraging words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 through 18 serve as a guide to help us in this way. Do you remember what he said in those verses, in verses 13 through 18 of chapter 4? What he does first and foremost is he offers them perspective. Paul, in his words to those who are grieving, those who are faint-hearted, he first offers them perspective. He says, you are not to grieve as those who have no hope. Right now, you're grieving as those who, uh, that have no hope for those who have perished before you, but that is not the right perspective. 
Yes, death is always discouraging. Death is unnatural and it is an enemy. But we are not like those who die apart from Christ. We know and trust the one who has conquered death. And so perspective makes a difference. But Paul also gives them a reason for that perspective. I want you to notice that as well. Remember what he says in chapter 4, verse 14. He says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that is the ground. That's the foundation of their hope. And it is a solid ground indeed. See, Paul doesn't just offer them perspective saying, you're looking at this the wrong way, guys. He gives them the reason they can change their perspective. You are not like those who die apart from Christ. He reminds them why they can have confidence. We believe that Jesus has conquered death, that he's been raised from the dead, so we can be confident that he will raise us also. Not only, though, does Paul offer perspective in encouraging those who are faint-hearted, he also offers them hope. He offers them hope. What a wonderful thing to offer someone who is faint-hearted. Look at where Paul ends that passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17. You remember, he says, And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Friends, isn't that our ultimate hope? As David writes in, in Psalm 27, 4, one thing I've desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all of my days, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That is our hope. Nothing else will do. Nothing less will strengthen the knees of the faint-hearted. Nothing else will lift up the head of those who are discouraged. No other hope will do. So those of us who get discouraged, who are faint-hearted, we need to be encouraged. Paul writes, encourage one another with these words. So now we've seen the ministry to the unruly, that we are to warn them. Uh, we've seen the ministry to the faint-hearted, that we are to encourage them by offering them perspective and offering them hope. Okay, what about the weak? Who are the weak? Again, while it's possible that Paul could be referring to those who are physically weak, who are uh, suffering from sickness or suffering from some sort of physical ailment, I think it's more probable that he's referring to those who are spiritually weak. Especially if that first group, which I believe it's clear that it is, the unruly, is that group from 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12, who are not working with their own hands and minding everybody else's affairs. Uh, if that's the unruly, if the faint-hearted is that second group from 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, who were grieving hopelessly at the prospect of the loss of their loved ones missing out on the return of Christ, well, I think it's clear then that the weak is that group from chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Those who were doubting their status about the return of the Lord, questioning where they would be on the Lord's return. What will be our destiny when Christ returns? Remember, there were so many people who were doubting what was going to happen uh, when Jesus returned. I think this is the group that Paul has in mind. Those who are spiritually weak. That's the who. Those who are spiritually weak. Those who are wrestling with doubts and specifically questioning their lot as it comes with the return of Christ. Okay, so how are we to minister to those who are weak? Paul's encouragement is very clear here. We help them. 
That's what we do to those who are weak. The weak among them fear that they might be objects of, on the, of wrath and the day of the Lord's return instead of the objects of God's favor, kindness, and blessing. How do we minister to the weak? Paul simply writes, we uphold. And that word really means to devote oneself to. Paul did not urge them simply to uphold weak members of the body. He urged them to devote themselves to weak members of their body. Not, by the way, a detached, non-emotional assistance, but a fully devoted service that steadied their weak knees and lifted their droopy heads. Again, Paul, Paul models exactly what it is these people need and what he writes in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5. Uh, we can help them by reminding them of what they know. That's the first thing that Paul does in chapter 5, 1 through 11. He reminds them of what they know. You remember how he starts in verse 1? For you yourselves know perfectly. He's reminding them of the truths that they already possess. See, friends, doubts are often dispelled with that simple reminder. You know the truth. You've simply forgotten. You already know all that you need to know. So he reminds them of what they know. But then secondly, in helping those who are weak in the faith, who are spiritually weak, Paul not only reminds them of what they know, but he reminds them of their gospel identity. He reminds them of their gospel identity. Remember, he says, you are no longer children of darkness, children of the night. You are children of the day, children of light. We remind the weak who they are in their time of doubt. Reminding them of their confidence, not in themselves, but in their God. For God is not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Their status on the day of the Lord returns, uh, on the day of the Lord's return is not dependent even in their faith, because weak as their faith may be, the bridge is strong. What do I mean by that? I mean, friends, you can have super strong faith and step out on a really weak bridge and plummet to your death. You, on the other hand, can have a horribly weak faith and step out on a super strong bridge and survive. See, the weak need to be reminded that their confidence is not even in their own ability to have faith, but in their God, in the work of Christ. So that's how he encourages and helps those who are weak. He reminds them of what they know. He reminds them of their gospel identity. But the third thing he does, and this might seem a little odd in offering help to those who are weak, he reminds them of their duty. Paul reminds them of their duty. You remember this from chapter 5, verse 6, where Paul says, Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. See, sometimes what the weak need the most is to exercise what little faith they have. Um, faith is always accompanied and strengthened by action. Uh, doubts would tempt us to believe that we should not continue to put one foot in front of the other. Doubts should tempt us that what we need is to step back and stay asleep. But Paul says, no, you need to be awake. You need to be sober. You are, obtained, uh, you are destined to attain salvation and not wrath. 
the doubting need to be reminded to keep exercising their faith even as fragile as it might be. Now, those are the three imperatives that are clearly laid out for us in God's word. But before I go to the fourth imperative you find there in verse 14, I want to offer us just one quick lesson and reminder uh, that we may need for our every member ministry. And that is, uh, it's clear here uh, that we are, uh, the unruly are who needs to be admonished, the faint-hearted are who needs to be comforted and encouraged, and the weak are those who need to be upheld. Why do I say that? Well, friends, it's because we have to be able to identify which is which. And I realize that these aren't nice, neat little compartments that only one person belongs to each one. <clears throat> but there is an important lesson to learn here, and that is that we, we don't encourage the unruly. We don't comfort them. We don't uphold them and help them along. What they need is a strong admonishment. Likewise, we don't admonish the faint-hearted and weak. And here's the problem, folks. If I'm honest, a lot of times it's so hard to tell the difference. I mean, the faint-hearted and weak sometimes can look a lot like the unruly. Not doing much, not receiving the advice and counsel of those who are attempting to help them. Yet what they desperately need is to be encouraged and upheld. Likewise, we might think that someone's faint-hearted and weak in the faith when all reality is what they need is an admonishment. They need to be reminded of the truth. They need to be uh, reminded of the goal. They need to hear about the motive and the importance of it. And listen, I wish I could offer you five uh, certain ways you can tell who belongs to what category, but I can't. However, I do want you to notice what Paul does next. Paul is going to offer a general exhortation next. And in light of what I just said and the difficulty that comes from that, I think and hope you'll see the importance of this. Look what Paul's next exhortation is. He says, minister to all members. He moves on to tell them, we are ministering to all members. Paul concludes his appeal with a general exhortation to say, minister to to everybody. In fact, in verse 15, he actually expands that general exhortation and look what he says in verse 15 of our text. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Look what he says. He urges the Thessalonians to admonish the unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, and uphold the weak. But ultimately, how we minister to all members is we must be patient to them all and in all things seek to do good to each and every one. Did you hear that? Be patient with them all and in all things seek to do good to each and every one. And I don't think it's very hard to see the importance of these two general exhortations, right? Uh, essentially, church, what Paul is urging the Thessalonians and us to do is to get in the trenches, uh, last week, he said, recognize and esteem your leaders for their work in the trenches. And this week, he says, all right, now everybody else, go ahead and get into the trenches as well. He's pressing them to engage with people who are dealing with their sin, who have lost sight of their hope, and who are questioning their status with God. He's engaging them to press these people with these words. Let me ask you a question. How do you think that's going to go? Seriously, we've been doing this for a while. 
How do you think that's going to go? When you go and admonish somebody who is being unruly, do you think that they're going to just say, oh, thank you so much, man. I felt myself slipping a little bit, but you opened my eyes to that and you brought me back. I'm going to turn this ship around real quick. Thank you, thank you so much. Or, or maybe the better question is to ask, how are you going to respond when someone comes to admonish you? When someone comes to warn you, for instance, against neglecting the means of grace, the study of the word, prayer, the fellowship of the saints. See, isn't it ironic? I, I do this, I'm sure. Maybe I'm the only one. I don't think I am. But every time we hear that we need to be admonishing one another, we so often think about three or four people that we need to talk to after the service, but we hardly ever think about who's going to come talk to us. Yet, all of us, every single believer at some point in time is in need of admonishment. Every single one of us is in need to be upheld by our brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, if Peter had to be admonished by Paul for abandoning the gospel truths, what makes us think we are going to remain above reproach? That we're going to escape the need of admonishment. So don't let the brevity of these commands lead you to believe that Paul is assuming that this work would be easy. <clears throat> Paul knew the risk and that's why he exhorts them to be patient with all and seek to do what is good. That's why Paul puts those imperatives to admonish, comfort, and uphold in the present tense. It's ongoing. It never ends. Sometimes you will be the admonisher. Sometimes you will be the admonished. Paul exhorts the Thessalonian church and us to be patient with them all. Now, I'd like to conclude with just a few lessons specifically for us here at First Baptist Church of Greg Gables as it regards our every member ministry. Just a few lessons. First, there are no timeouts. There's not even a timeout. Uh, do you remember when you were a kid and you were playing tag? Maybe if you were chubby and slow like I was as a kid. Uh, you were playing tag with the neighborhood kids and you, you saw them chasing you down. And you're like, oh, I'm getting hawked down here. And what would you do right before they tagged you? You'd yell, timeout! As if that ever really worked. Friends, it doesn't work in tag. It doesn't work in tag and it doesn't work in church life. You're always on. We are always in need of ministering to one another. And we will always be doing this throughout our pilgrimage. There are no timeouts. We are always to be doing this. Second, there are no sidelines. There are no timeouts and there are no sidelines. Every single one of us is either ministering to or being ministered to. And sometimes, a lot of the times, it's often both. In Paul's view of church life, there are no sidelines. We are the unruly admonishing the more unruly. We are faint-hearted people ministering to more faint-hearted among us. We are the weak of faith upholding the weaker of faith among us. And I think that that is at the heart of what we call every member ministry. Right there. Because the moment you are deceived and think you are great of faith, that you've got no rebellion in you, then you have become unfit for every member ministry. Part, the ground of every member ministry is the gospel. 
we were the unruly who took advantage of the generosity of our God and refused to do our Father's work. But Jesus, our elder brother, fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf. He lovingly admonished us and calls us to repentance. He is the one who will establish us uh, in blameless and holiness before our God and Father. We are the faint-hearted. We were the faint-hearted. Hopelessly grieving in this world uh, due to death because we're separated from the covenants of promise. We are without hope in this world. But Jesus, our only comfort and hope in life and death, came and lived and died for us. He conquered death on our behalf and he provides and encourages us with the promise of his certain return and glory. Oh, friends, we were the weakest of faith, the spiritually weakest. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. We exchanged the glory of God for idols. But Jesus brought us back to life. He brought us to life, resurrected us from the dead. He granted us faith, and now we've been seated with him high in the heavenly places, and he has promised to complete that work which he has began in us. This is the gospel, and this is the only ground for why we are to minister to one another. So friends, one last lesson. There are no timeouts. There are no sidelines, and despite the corny analogies, this is not a game. It's not a game. What will happen to the unruly if no one admonishes them? What if they continue in their unrepentant disobedient because you're busy or tired? What will happen to the faint-hearted if they give into their despair and discouragement? What will happen to the weak if their doubts persist and morph into unbelief? Listen, don't just toss this out because of your theology and says, well, then they were really never among us. The reality is, as terrifying as it might be, some might fall away. And yet, friends, you, church, are the means by which your brothers and sisters will persevere. If we grow impatient and stop seeking to pursue the good of all, then they will be lost. My point is this, is simply that the stakes are high. We cannot afford to grow weary of doing good. And yet, we can be confident that we do not labor in vain. Because we know the one who has gone before us. We know the author and perfecter of our faith. And yet, let me remind you, when I say we, I'm talking about the church. See, if, if you have been in church your entire life and you've got no desire to minister to your brothers and sisters in Christ, could it be that you're not actually a part of the church? I'm not just talking about attending. I'm talking about of Christ's bride, that you've never repented of your sins and trusted him by faith because, friends, this is what Christians do. Members of Christ's church minister to members of Christ's church. You, you can't detach yourself from this responsibility. This is what it means to be a member of the church, is that we minister to one another. And so my question is, if you've never had a desire to minister to your brothers and sisters in Christ, could it be that's because you don't know the author and perfecter of our faith? 
If you've gone through the motions, you've attended church, you know what it looks like to be a cultural Christian in 21st century American Bible Belt Christianity, that doesn't necessarily mean you know what it means to be a member of Christ's bride and his church. If that's the case, our prayer is that you would repent and trust in the finished work of Christ on your behalf. That you be brought into this glorious body and be brought into this beautiful thing called every member ministry. Let's go to Lord and ask for his blessing over what's been said. Gracious Father, Lord, I thank you that your church does not labor in her own strength. I thank you that we are not islands, that you've not left us to ourselves, but you've instead placed us into a family. I thank you that we are responsible for one another, that our ministry to one another, it matters or that we're not high and lifted up reaching down to those poor souls who don't just have it yet but instead all of us together shoulder to shoulder help each other stand and persevere by your grace we will father would you continue to work that grace through us uniting us in faith as we're united in one lord by one spirit that you might receive all honor and glory through us We pray this in Jesus' holy name, amen, amen. Again, the application, the invitation is very simple for us this morning, specifically for those of us who are pandemic. Uh, Listen, I, I know how hard this must be in this time and season, but it's a truth I believe that we need to hear is just because we are separated from the church due to this pandemic does not mean we can neglect our responsibilities to minister to one another. And listen, just in the same way where we praise God through this technological age that you're able uh, to, to watch this sermon and this online service, we praise God through this technological age that you are able to minister to one another without being face-to-face through text, through phone calls, through Facebook messages, through prayers, and through all these things. Do not neglect every member ministry just because you're not able to be here. And yet, friends, again, the the invitation is very clear. If, if you've got no desire, never had a desire. If, if you love coming to church, but you can't stand the people of the church, you just, you wanna come and receive for you and then go home and not have to do anything. Friends, you really need to reconsider whether or not you belong to the same father that I do. That you belong to the same father of, of the church, the actual church. Because this is what being a member of that church looks like. Our, our, our salvation is personal, but it's not private. Uh, we are to live out this life in the context of other people who belong to Christ's church. So are you ministering to other members? If you've never had a desire, could it be that you don't know our Father? That you don't know the God of the universe who's holy and just? that you don't know that he sent his son Jesus to die for our sins, to bring us, unite us through repentance and faith through the finished work on Calvary into the family of God, where we have brothers and sisters who we love, who we minister to, who we grow together with. If you don't belong to that family, friends, then today is the day where you need to repent and trust in that work. That is our prayer for you. Of course, reach out to us if we can help you in any way. Church family, we love you. We miss you. We look forward to being reunited again. God bless you. Have a wonderful, wonderful week.